Hello and welcome to the history of Vikings. Alcuin of York was an Anglo-Saxon scholar who is famous for recounting the first major Viking raid at Lindisfarne Monastery in 793. In this account, Alcuin sees the Scandinavian incursion in apocalyptic terms, understanding the Vikings as God's punishment for mankind's sin. No more than six years after this infamous Viking raid, Alcuin describes another attack, this time off the western coast of Charlemagne's Frankish Empire. Pagan ships have done much damage to the islands off Aquitaine. Some of them were destroyed, and about 105 pirates were killed on the beach. Alcuin's account of pagan ships along the western Frankish coast has traditionally been understood as the first Viking raid in the Frankish Empire. From Ragnar Lothbrok and the Siege of Paris in 845, to the differences between a Frankish warrior and a Viking warrior, today we'll be discussing all things related to Vikings in the Frankish Empire. Joining me to discuss this topic is Dr. Christian Coymans, a British Academy Research Fellow at the University of Liverpool, and author of a new book titled Monarchs and Hydrarchs, The Conceptual Development of Viking Activity Across the Frankish Realm. The publisher of this book is giving away one copy to a lucky listener of the history of Vikings. To enter the giveaway, all you have to do is text the word Frankish to the phone number 55444, and one of you lucky listeners will receive Chris's new book. Again, text Frankish to 55444. The winner will be contacted two weeks from today. Without further ado, here's my conversation with Dr. Christian Coymans about Vikings in the Frankish Empire. Chris, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. Hey, Noah. Thanks for having me. It's such a pleasure to have you. Well, I'll tell you, as somebody who's interested in Viking history, obviously being the host of this podcast, your book was of particular interest to me when I first learned about it. It seems like there's been so much written on Anglo-Saxon England and the Viking activity there, and one can imagine and read a great deal about, you know, the um, Viking expeditions east and certainly to Iceland as well. But one doesn't find much written material, at least in the circles that I've been associated with, um, with the Vikings in Francia, the Vikings coming into contact with the Emperor Charlemagne and his successors. I guess the first question I'll ask you is, why did the Vikings come to Francia? What about this region made it particularly ripe for raiding and then invasion? Yeah, so 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 Francia was a was a vast um, territory. Uh, would have been over a, a million square kilometers uh, during the early ninth uh, century, and and just to just to give a a bit of comparison, that's more than three times the size of of Britain and Ireland combined. So so it's a it's a pretty sizable region that we're focusing on here, and uh, so for a number of centuries, um, Francia would have been part of these pre-existing networks of, of trade and of other communications that stretched 
all along its borders, um, including across the North Sea. And by the 8th century, we see this, this blossoming of, of harbor sites like uh, Dorostad on the River Rhine and Cantuvik on the Channel and Rouen on the Seine. Uh, these are all known to have acted as these conduits for, for large amounts of goods that were shipped between um, the Frankish heartlands and its neighboring, uh, neighboring regions across the sea. Um, now, one of those regions would have been uh, Scandinavia, of course, where we know that um, goods from the Frankish realm were introduced both before and uh, during the early Viking Age, um, including um, metalware and glassware and, and ceramics, um, which may have contained things like uh, wine and spices and other types of, of food and drink, um, which were all produced in Francia, but would have been considered um, highly desirable in Scandinavia and, and, and were used as, as a kind of marker of, of, of social status um, there. Now, when merchandise traveled, people would have traveled. Um, and when people, when people traveled, um, information was exchanged and, and merchants uh, would have talked, of course, uh, not, not just about their own wares that they were bringing, but also uh, about where they came from and what routes they took and who they encountered along the way and, and what kind of um, rumors they would have picked up. Um, and because of, of all that, um, Scandinavians would have, would have gradually obtained this familiarity um, with the geographical layout of the Frankish realm and, and with its, um, its institutions and with its, its wealth, um, basically. And I think in that sense, someone's uh, knowledge about a place can also be seen as, a, as an invisible but very valuable uh, resource in its own right. And, and one which um, would eventually allow Vikings to very rapidly make their way across um, Francia. Um, but um, just, to, just to go back to your question on the, on the specific appeal of the region. Um, so, so just like those trade centers I mentioned before, Francia uh, was home to a, to a large network of, of monasteries, uh, which often would have been these, these outlying and secluded communities, but which still commanded um, quite a lot of wealth and, and influence. And so like we see in, in England and in Ireland, for example, um, it's these types of, of liminal and often coastal sites that um, Vikings seem to have focused on to begin with in, in search of that wealth. Um, and and these, these, these monasteries and these harbors, they were largely um, unprepared. Um, they were undefended and they were very easy to, uh, to approach by sea. So up until around the 840s, they seem to have been a very um, attractive initial target uh, of, of, of Viking aggression. So this is where we first see Vikings um, appear and, and attack. Fascinating. And what, um, this is something I'm curious about too, when did the Vikings sort of first come to Francia? I mean, I remember reading, you know, some um, scholarly works that suggest the year 799 with the um, account of Alcuin. Um, others have said it wasn't until really the 820s that they really became relevant. Uh, what are your sort of um, thoughts on that? So um, the Vikings 
are uh, are are generally um, traditionally thought to have first arrived in Francia in 799. That's the first time that you you, you read about them um, in 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 most modern uh, sort of scholarship. But when we talk about that actual particular source, um, that refers to a letter that was uh, produced by um, Alcuin, who was a, a scholar at the at the Frankish court at the time. And he mentions that um, there was an attack on islands uh, off the coast of Aquitaine um, in 799, but we don't know exactly whether these would have been Vikings, and we don't know exactly where um, this attack would have taken place. So we, we, we have the account mentions islands off the coast. Now, generally, it's thought one of those islands would have been Nuamuche, which is uh, one of these larger islands um, off the coast of, of what would have been northern Aquitaine. Um, but because it's not, um, the, the account isn't that specific, it doesn't mention the exact name of the island, and it doesn't mention the exact perpetrators. Um, I'm rather skeptical about whether or not these would have been Vikings. They could have been uh, Saracen raiders, for example, which were also known to have, uh, to have been active. Uh, around that area. So um, it's generally thought uh, that that's the first attack, but I would say that maybe it would have happened slightly later. Um, there was an attack in, uh, in 810 uh, on Frisia, uh, which is much further north, uh, and that would have included uh, quite a number of ships uh, that attacked the coast and, and, and attacked uh, a number of 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 uh, Frisian um, settlements there, uh, and the Frisians seem to have been in a battle with Vikings there. Um, so that's, but that's generally the first sort of larger Viking attack, and it's it's that's the one I would hold up as saying like, well, this is this is a Viking attack. However, um, <laughs> there's a caveat there too, because. That was, a, that was an attack that was initiated not uh, sort of independently, if you will, but it was, um, that was sent forth by the king of Denmark at the time. Um, so that's, that's uh, Gottfried uh, of Denmark. He, was, he, he would have sent forth that attack and is mentioned as doing so in a number uh, of sources um, just before his death, um, which was also in 810. Um, that attack... Uh, then prompted Charlemagne uh, to move his forces uh, to the Saxon border, to the to the Danish border, even. And um, but en route, he was notified that um, Gottfried, the Danish king, um, had been killed. Um, and and then uh, because of that, he um, stopped his his campaign and and headed back south. Gotcha, gotcha. That's interesting. That's something I had I had wondered about. What was the state of the Frankish army when the Vikings first arrived in Francia? Uh, one imagines that the army of the Roman emperor would be uh, fairly organized uh, and powerful as well. But was that the case? Were the Franks well positioned to fight off the Vikings? Um, well, so, so, so when the Vikings uh, first arrived on the scene, um, and the evidence puts that around so the turn of the 9th century, as I, as I mentioned, um, the, the Frankish realm was a, a fairly prosperous uh, political unit. So, so Charlemagne um, had just been crowned emperor. 
And, and for, for decades, um, he had managed to, to sort of greatly expand the area of, of Frankish authority um, across Lombardy and Bavaria, for instance, um, across the Avar and the Slavic territories to the east, um, and, and Saxony um, in the northeast, which, which basically brought Frankish rule and, and, and influence right to uh, Scandinavia's doorstep, if you will. So um, militarily, Francia was in, was in a pretty good shape at this point, and, and the early responses to Viking attacks seemed to reflect that. Um, because um, during the first decades of the 9th century, both Charlemagne and his son and successor, uh, Louis the Pious, established uh, a lot of, of coastal defenses uh, against early Viking activity. And we, we can see the effectiveness of these measures. Um, so in, in 820, for example, there are two attacks uh, by the same Viking group that were stopped by coastal guards in Flanders, um, and then again on the mouth uh, of the River Seine, um, although those same Vikings then did eventually manage to uh, attack a village in, in Aquitaine. Um, but overall, these, these defenses were quite effective uh, to begin with. But we do see this this um, this this change, quite a noticeable change here during the um, during the 830s and the 840s, um, when we can see this gradual disintegration of political unity across the Frankish realm. So um, at the time, there was this this ongoing conflict between uh, Louis the Pious and his own sons over his succession, um, and that effectively put Francia in a in a state of civil war for many years and. And this would eventually lead to it breaking up into three separate kingdoms, which were each ruled by one of these sons. Um, and this was codified in the, uh, in, in the well-known uh, Treaty of Verdun of, of 843. Um, and so it's that, that lack of political unity and all the, the sort of military weaknesses that came with it um, that would have helped these, these ever larger Viking groups to, to slip through the cracks and, and, and attack uh, more significant targets that were found increasingly um, upriver. Well, you mentioned coastal defenses. Um, I'm curious, what what sort of defenses are we dealing with here? I mean, are, are these groups of men perhaps positioned on either side of a river or waterway, sort of the gatekeepers of, of the medieval highways that, that were the rivers? Or are these fortifications? What are we dealing with there? So we mostly think that they were, uh, they were just, well, they're mentioned as coast guards. So they would have been mostly just men stationed uh, along the coast, probably guarding the entrances to the riverways. Um, large rivers like uh, the Rhine, um, the, the Scheldt, uh, the, the, the Seine, these kinds of rivers uh, were, 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 as you say, quite important. They were, they were the, the, the arteries. Uh, through which trade came in and went out, they were they were very important uh, uh, politically and and economically. Um, so coast guards seem to have been present uh, there just to bar anyone um, from from attacking uh, upriver. Um, but the the specifics of those of those uh, defenses aren't well recorded. So we just we just have to deal with. Um, them being called coast guards. Um, there is one fortification, uh, sort of like a fortress, uh, that seems to have been constructed um, at Noamuche. So this is the island that I already mentioned. 
And um, that seems to have been an actual sort of uh, a, a not not so much a castle, uh, a fortification that uh, would have held uh, a, a garrison uh, of sorts. That's at least how it's described. Interesting, interesting. If one compared a Viking warrior to a Frankish warrior, uh, what would they find? What were the similarities and differences between the the fighting men of each faction? Well, this this is a really good question, um, but it's it's also one that doesn't have a very straightforward answer. Uh, I'm afraid. Something that we can deduce from the written sources is that Vikings in Francia really didn't seem to be a very um, uniform bunch of people. They're often characterized as these individual groups with with very individual goals. Um, And those goals sometimes uh, coincided. Uh, For example, when a a larger target needed to be attacked, um, we can see these separate Viking forces pooling their resources to to meet that objective. but those kinds of groups would just as easily obstruct each other. Um, just to give you uh, an example there, um, in 861, there's mention of three distinct Viking fleets that were active um, around the River Seine at the same time. And two of those companies are seen to have entered into an agreement to attack the third one, um, which was holed up in a, in a fortified encampment. Um, and in the same way, after that siege was over, those same forces then split up again into much smaller parties. So it seems that that these different Viking factions uh, would have been quite flexible, politically speaking. Now, in terms of their physical appearance, it may have been possible to to differentiate between individual Viking um, armies or fleets, uh, for example, through the symbols that they used. In the Frankish texts, we see a number of references to Vikings uh, having carried flags uh, or banners, and, and some of these were captured by Frankish troops and then displayed to a regional ruler uh, to prove that a Viking force had been uh, defeated. But from those same sources, it's much harder to tell how Vikings on expedition would have dressed, for example, or if they spoke in a specific dialect or, or other very distinguishing features uh, like that. Um, we, we, do have, uh, we do have one account uh, that was composed by a contemporary author, uh, which goes into this a, a little bit. Um, it talks about a military confrontation between Vikings and uh, Frankish troops along the Seine um, in 845. Um, and in doing that, it characterizes the Frankish side as being this, this very well-equipped and well-defended force. And, and the Vikings as this very wild and naked and almost unarmed band. So there's, there's, a, there's a very strong um, contrast there. Now, I, I would say that we should take that account with a grain of salt because it was very probably intended as a piece of propaganda uh, rather than a factual uh, account of, of those types of events. I, I would also uh, say that Viking forces don't seem to have been exclusively, uh, exclusively made up of just um, Scandinavians. That's something that's quite a tenacious view, um, but it's, it's, it's also one that scholars are now increasingly, uh, are increasingly starting to turn away from. Um, in Francia, it's reported that a, a number of, of locals, uh, some of them were monks actually, actively seem to have joined the Viking ranks. 
um, and they were and they were described as as apostates for doing this. Um, so they were basically noted uh, to have abandoned Christianity in order to attach themselves to this to this opposing force. Um, there's there's quite a notorious example of that, um, and that's Pippin II. Um, now Pippin was a nephew to King Charles the Bald, and he was a, a sort of rival claimant to, to his uh, political power in uh, in Aquitaine. And um, after after many years of, of rebellion in in, um, uh, in 864, Pippin is reported to have uh, joined company with a group of Vikings and to have lived like one of them. That's the quote: to have lived like one of them. Now, wow. what exactly that means is is up for debate, but it does seem to indicate that this this Viking life did have some appeal and that it was possible for some at least uh, to take up. That, that kind of life. Um, now, because of cases like that, it wouldn't be accurate to say that all Vikings would have been Scandinavian. I mean, many would have been, for sure, uh, most even, but certainly not all of them. Um, if, if anything, I think it emphasizes that there wasn't just one kind of Viking, but that there were various and, and very different and very complex Viking identities. Um, so it's, it's not really a stretch to propose that Viking forces would have been uh, multi-ethnic and, and very motley crews uh, with much more versatility than the Frankish armies, uh, which would have been uh, much more rigid and much more structured and, and centrally controlled. That's fascinating. That's absolutely fascinating. Now, where does one get the most information about Viking activity? In Frankia, I mean, what sources are are most telling with with regard to this part of the Viking world? So, um, um, yeah, our, our our knowledge of of Viking movement in Frankia mostly comes from written sources uh, from the period itself, and 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 thankfully, a lot of those documents do survive. Um, so, uh, just like in in Britain and in Ireland, there are these major uh, historical annals and chronicles available to us. Um, and one of the most important of these is a text uh, that we now know as the um, Annals of Saint-Bertin. That was written by a number uh, of 9th century authors, and, and it goes into great detail about uh, the regional movements and the impact uh, of these Viking groups, especially uh, around the western part of Francia. Now, to counterbalance that, um, we also have the Annals of Fulda, which offer a much more Eastern Frankish perspective. Um, and, and when you put those two together, they're a brilliant uh, resource to our understanding of uh, Viking activity throughout the, uh, the wider region. But there's, there's much more uh, as well. I mean, there are, there are various other uh, chronicles. There are um, saints' lives. There are letters. Um, there's poetry, legal text charters, and, and all of these um, deal with, with incoming Vikings in, in some way, shape, or form. Now, we do also have some archaeological evidence for this Viking presence, uh, but there's very little of it compared to, to other parts of the Viking world, unfortunately. Um, that's not necessarily because the evidence isn't out there, I think. Um, there have been all sorts of explanations put forward as to why there is still this, this discrepancy, um, including uh, different patterns of Viking activity, um, different modern heritage strategies, uh, different legal frameworks for metal detecting even. 
Um, but but a lot of the continental evidence we do have is quite exciting, um, I think. So um, first of all, th- there's this this 10th century cremation burial uh, from the Ile de Croix, which is off the coast uh, of Brittany, which um, was found to contain the remains of an adult, uh, an adolescent, and a number of animals. And all of these seem to have been placed in a ship uh, before it was lit on fire and then buried. Now, judging from the grave goods that accompanied that burial, um, which included all sorts of, of weaponry and tools and, 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 and personal effects, this is considered to be um, the burial of quite a, a high-status Viking leader. And, and um, in fact, it's still the only one of its kind that we know of uh, from around the Frankish realm. Let's see, another example further north, um, in the Dutch province of of North Holland, uh, there have been finds of of several quite significant um, silver hordes. And we think that these point to a more established Viking presence in that area, which may have lasted for several decades. Um, There have also been various stray finds of what we consider to be Viking-type swords. Um, as well as certain types of, of jewelry, which were uh, likely produced in Scandinavia itself. Now, some of those items may have been accidentally lost in transit, or maybe they could have been consciously deposited there in a sort of um, ritual manner. Um, but they may also have been trade objects. So we don't know for sure whether they would have been used during Viking campaigns uh, or not. Now. Something that I, I, I would say, though, is that we, we do have some physical evidence for, uh, for Viking attacks on, on specific Frankish sites. Um, so excavations at, at Rouen, for example, have uncovered quite a lot of debris of, of burned wood and, and molten lead and, and glass within the cathedral area. And those have been interpreted as the result of a large out-of-control fire. And that has been connected to the known Viking attack on the town of 841. Um, we've got similar evidence uh, from, from Liège, which is on the River Meuse. Uh, that was attacked in the 880s, uh, as well as from um, two towns in the eastern Netherlands, which are called Deventer and Zutphen. And both of those were targeted um, around the same time. So uh, that's just a, a very very brief overview of the, of the types of, of archaeological evidence that we can work with. Um, but as I said, it, it's all still far outweighed by the, by the textual corpus. So there's, there's still lots of work uh, to be done there. Certainly. Now, do you find that those textual sources are, are fairly biased, you know, perhaps written by chroniclers who, who are, and, and um, monks as well, who are um are keen to promote a frankish view of the situation you know the viking activity oh no a- absolutely i would i would agree with that for sure um many of the sources we deal with ha- are 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 uh are very biased um and uh seem to cast events in a certain light that would have uh in a way that seems to have been politically motivated uh, or seems to have cast uh, themselves in a in a victim role in certain cases, um, which especially when you talk about um, monastic authors, monastic chroniclers, they were often on the receiving end of this kind of of, of Viking aggression. Um, so they would cast the Vikings as as much more um, destructive, probably than they would have uh, than they would have been. 
um, they may have cast Vikings as um, uh, almost a divine punishment, if you will. And um, their numbers uh, may have been very much inflated by these chroniclers. So when we talk about a Viking fleet, that um, it could have, it, it is sometimes described as having hundreds, if not thousands, uh, of, of participants uh, in, in, in this particular force, hundreds of th- and thousands of individuals. Um, so we get a sense there that many of this could have been quite exaggerated um, just to suit a particular uh, domestic agenda, whether that's local or regional. Um, it's hard to say. But that's why when we do look at these kinds of sources, it's always helpful to have several different perspectives uh, describing the same event. So there are, for example, attacks, um, quite large uh, and and, and prolific attacks um, that have three or four or five uh, contemporary chroniclers writing about them. um, and And you get different perspectives on the same event. And when they tend to agree on certain uh, aspects, then uh, we we can take we have a much more sort of um, reliable picture of what these events would have actually looked like. And you know, when the Vikings are are cast in this sort of biased light of you know the, the the Franks are the victims here, or you know even the exaggeration of the size of of the Viking forces. I mean, one has to remember that the um. The Vikings were indeed violent in a in an age of violence. I mean, you know, early uh, medieval history just has countless examples of this. And I mean, um, the Frankish Empire contributed to this. I mean, you know, one is um, thinks of um, Charlemagne's dealing with the Saxons, and then of course converting them to Christianity rather violently. Right? No, for sure. I mean. The type of violence um, that we associate with the, with the, the the Vikings themselves is not something that would have been unfamiliar to the Franks at all. They themselves have been uh, quite successful in conquering other parts of Europe for uh, for 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 many decades, if not centuries. Um, and the Frankish the Frankish realm itself uh, had become that big, had become you know that that successful politically in large part due to these military successes along its borders, um, which only seem to have, have gradually come to a halt during the early ninth century. Um, and, and so it's, it's, it's often when you read um, specific chronicles, on, on one page you, you might find a Frankish um, uh, ruler conquering a specific region, but then in the next you uh, people are outraged that Vikings are are, are doling out the same violence um, in in within within their realm. So you, so you do see that that there's a bit of a, a contrast there, and there's a bit of a, a cognitive dissonance um, that the author either is not aware of or is consciously uh, ignoring. One often reads, as I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation today, one often reads about Viking activity in England, you know, the, the famous monastery raids, and then certainly the, the Danelaw and the great heathen army. What is unique about the Viking activity in Francia when compared to any of the other regions that the Vikings went to and inhabited and conquered? The thing is, I would actually argue that Viking activity in Francia isn't all that unique uh, in many ways, and that and that it ties in pretty well with what we already know about their movements in in England and in in Ireland, for example. 
Um, on the whole, we, we see very similar patterns uh, of activity and, and we start in the same way with these, these smaller scale attacks on peripheral monasteries and, and other vulnerable sites. But then as we head further into the ninth century, those campaigns start to, to grow in size and in intensity, and they gradually move upriver and focus on much more sizable towns and other targets. Um, in some cases, those expeditions even seem to have involved the same people in both regions. Um, so there are a number of Viking fleets that are identified as having moved um, quite freely between the continent and, and England. Um, and, and having attacked targets in both territories following on from one another. Um, so you, you also mentioned uh, the, the great army there. So at the time when that force was most active in England uh, during the 860s and the 870s, we see this, this noticeable drop in reported Viking activity in Francia, um, only for that then to sort of flare up again afterwards. So, so there certainly seems to be a, a, a correlation there. But what does make Francia more unique, I think, is that, is that the evidence for Viking activity from the region provides a very different perspective on these events and, and very much complements the archaeological work that's been done um, in other parts of Europe. Um, so Viking encampments uh, would be a good example there. Now, you will know that these camps were established by Viking forces to, to, to rest and to, and to recuperate, um, but they also seem to have acted as these venues of, of regional craft production and trade. Um, and they reflect this notion that some Viking groups, after their seasonal campaigns, um, no longer seem to have had the need or the desire to return to their place of origin, whether that was Scandinavia or somewhere else. But when we talk about those kinds of encampments, um, we, we usually tend to refer to, to quite um, well-known and excavated sites um, like, like Repton in England and Woodstown in, in Ireland, for example. Um, but the, the Viking encampments of Francia don't usually play a part in that picture. And I think that's in large part due to the lack of archaeological evidence that we have for their um, establishment. But at the same time, some of the most extensive um, contemporary descriptions of these camps are from the continent, uh, and they provide this, this level of detail that you don't usually find in the English uh, or the Irish texts. Um, for example, they, they, they refer to the layout and to the logistics of these camps. Um, they talk about what kind of defenses they had, um, but also... Um, sometimes about what happened within their walls, um, the building and the repair of ships, for example, uh, the setting up of quartering, the um, production of weapons, the preparation of food, the, the support of trade. So I think on the one hand, we have these, these very tangible remains of Viking camps from the British and the Irish Isles, um, but also very rich descriptions of their um, counterparts on the continent. And I think that bringing those two bodies of evidence together would really help fill some of those gaps in our knowledge of these kinds of sites. Um, and, and that's something I've been, I've been working on uh, more recently. I think that that's just one example of this imbalance in how we've approached the evidence for the different regions. Um, 
Frankia really hasn't featured all that much in the more sort of overarching investigations of Viking activity. And, and I think we would do well to, to include it more often because it could really help us reach all kinds of valuable new insights on, on the wider Viking um, phenomenon. That's something that I mentioned at the, the beginning of our, our conversation is, you know, you really don't see a lot of um, scholarly press coverage, as it, as it were, <laughs> for, this, um, for Viking activity in this region. One of the most famous events occurring in Viking Age, Frankia, that um, people are probably aware of is the Siege of Paris in 845 AD. For novice listeners, could you just sort of tell us the story of this battle? And is it true that uh, a man identified with the famous Ragnar Lothbrok is said to have possibly led the Viking attack? Yeah, so um, the, the 845 siege that you mentioned is the first uh, of, a, of a number uh, of, of recorded Viking attacks on Paris uh, during the 9th century. And it's described by about half a dozen or so contemporary sources. Some of those accounts contradict each other uh, on some of the details, but they do seem to um, mostly agree that a, that a large Viking fleet entered the River Seine in March of 845, um, where they would have devastated the surrounding countryside before arriving outside of Paris uh, on the night before Easter. Uh, and one source uh, specifically mentions that they would have waited under cover of darkness and then launched their attack at first light on, on Easter Sunday. Now, what exactly happened at that point is a bit unclear. Um, some of the sources mention that Vikings managed to get into the city itself, um, but others don't mention that at all. And they only report that they managed to sack the uh, monastery of Saint-Germain-des-Prés, which at the time was located just outside the city walls um, on the uh, southern riverbank. But um, whichever is true, it seems that the Viking force was eventually um, paid off by King Charles the Bald with thousands of pounds uh, of silver so that they would leave. And, and this is what seems to have happened. But a few of those sources claim that they did um, get their, their comeuppance um, in the end, if you will, um, and that because they attacked that monastery, they were um, allegedly struck by blindness and by insanity and, and even dysentery. So um, that would have killed quite a few of them, uh, I imagine. The, um, the figure of uh, Ragnar Lothbrok is very commonly associated with this event. But whether he was actually present there is very much um, up for debate. So um, there does seem to have been a Viking leader called Ragnar who took part in this attack. He is mentioned by name in a few of these same contemporary sources. So there, was, there definitely was a Ragnar. Um, one of them even mentioned that, that this Ragnar would have made his way back to Scandinavia afterwards and then uh, would have bragged to, to King Horik in Denmark about how weak and how fearful the Frankish people had been. Uh, and that was supposedly overheard then by a Frankish envoy who was there um, as well. Um, but it's, it's only much later that medieval authors really started to, uh, to identify the historical Ragnar with, with, with the much more sort of legendary figure of, of Ragnar Lothbrok. Um, in, in the sources from the continent itself, um, that name, Lothbrok, which, which means something like uh, hairy trousers uh, in Old Norse, it, it really 
doesn't seem to appear before um, the 11th century. And, and that's already, you know, hundreds of years removed from the events themselves. Um, and it's only from the 12th and from the 13th century through the, uh, through the Icelandic sagas and through other sources that we really start to see that character um, solidify and become much more regularly associated with these uh, kinds of events in Francia. Um, but in the end, th there's really nothing that reliably ties that same figure to the attack of 845. Um, and it seems that the connection really wasn't made until much later on. Um, but it, but it's it's something that certainly does persist, uh, yeah, to the to the present day. Um, so it, it's very interesting to see that narrative develop over the centuries, and it's something that's um, that's 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 well worth researching in its own right, uh, I think. But I, I guess that's a, that's 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 a bit of a story for another day, I guess. Certainly, and, and the Vikings they came again to Paris in eight eight five to eight eight six, if I'm correct. Yes, that's right. Absolutely. The 885 attack was was a massive event. It was probably much much uh, larger than the 845 attack. Um, it's the one that's not as often talked about, um, but it would have lasted months and months. Um, it was only over in 886, um, and the Vikings never managed to get into Paris, but for months on end tried to get into the city um, using siege weapons, using um, all sorts of different um, strategies to, to get in, um, using fire ships even. Um, but there is, in the end, it seems that they didn't uh, manage to get into uh, the city and they were eventually bought off uh, again by uh, a Frankish ruler. And then uh, they, would have, they, would have, they would have still been around uh, for the next um, couple of years even. That, that, the, the Seine region um, has a lot of Viking activity, uh, a lot of recorded Viking activity uh, during that period. So it would have it would have taken a few more years for the Vikings to actually leave that particular region. Um, but it the the eight eighty five attack seems to have, have been uh, a very sort of significant uh, event uh, in 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 that region in that period. Right. Well, Chris, it's been so fascinating having you on the podcast. I loved your book. I certainly have a copy on my desk, and I highly recommend it. And of course, I will put a link to it in the description of this episode for all of you listeners. It's Monarchs and Hydrarchs, the Conceptual Development of Viking Activity Across the Frankish Realm. And it really um, synthesizes what sources are available for Viking activity in this particular region. And as you mentioned, Chris, of course, I do agree in saying that it would be of great benefit to uh, both scholars and then amateur sort of Viking enthusiasts to investigate and look further into the Viking activity here. But Chris, thanks so much for coming on the podcast. It's my pleasure, Noah. Thanks very much. Take care now. Thank you for listening to the History of Vikings. Remember, you can enter to win a copy of Chris's new book, Monarchs and Hydrarchs, by texting the word Frankish to the phone number 55444. Thank you so much again for listening. Join us here for another episode next week. <laughs>